Spurgeon. A Charles Spurgeon podcast. God is with us. Sermon number 580. Delivered on Sunday morning, July 17, 1864, by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans chapter 8, verse 31. The truth here asserted is indisputable. Even unbelievers have taken this for their motto and emblazoned it upon their standards of war. God is for us has been the war cry of many a warrior as he has run to the fight. However out of place it was in such an association, its force was clearly perceived. Our text, however, protects itself from ill usage, for you observe that the text is guarded with the little word, if, as a sentinel. No man, therefore, has any right to the treasures of this text unless he can give the password and answer the question. It is not every man who can say that God is on his side. On the contrary, most people are fighting against the Lord. By nature, we are the friends of sin, and then God is against us. With all the powers of justice, he is against us for our destruction unless we turn and repent. Is God for us? Remember, he is so if we have been reconciled to him by the death of his son. But an absolute God must be in arms against us. For God is a consuming fire. It is only when we behold the Lord Jehovah in the person of Jesus Christ that our hope and joy can begin. When we see deity incarnate, when we see God surrendering the glories of his throne to become man and then stooping to the shameful death of the cross, it is then that we perceive Emmanuel, God with us, and perceiving him, we feel that he is on our side. Question yourself then, soul, whether you are in Christ. He who is not with Christ is not with God. If you are without Christ, you are without God. But if, through the sprinkled blood, you can say that you are reconciled to God, then take the full meaning of this text and feast upon it. For if God is for us, who can be against us? We shall handle the text thus, and may the Holy Spirit make it profitable. First, how is God for us? Secondly, who is against us? And thirdly, who is not against us? First, how is God for us? Augustine, in his notes upon the verses preceding our text, has very beautifully said that God is for us, according to the preceding words of the chapter, in four senses. Look back a verse or two and you will find it. He is for us, for he has predestined us. He is for us, for he has called us. He is for us, for he has justified us. He is for us, because he has virtually glorified us and will actually do so. To the people of God, here are four very prolific subjects of thought. God is for us first, because according to the words of the apostle, he has predestined his people to be conformed to the image of his own dear son. 
Now, if God has predestined us to eternal life, who can be against us? Must not the predestinating decree of God take effect? If God has determined it, who shall prevent it? If God has said it shall be so, who is he that shall stop his hand or resist the omnipotent decree of the Most High? He said, let there be light, and there was light. He instructed the world to spring out of nothing, and it came forth. All things obey him. Heaven adores him. Hell trembles at him. No creature can resist him. As the potter molds the clay according to his own will, while it revolves upon the wheel, even so the infinite, the omnipotent Jehovah, does according to his own good pleasure in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of this lower world. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who then can stand against or resist him? See, my brothers and sisters, the force of God's decree of old in the case of Israel. The Lord had promised to Abraham that his offspring would inherit the whole land of Canaan, from the river of Egypt to the river Euphrates. See, among the smoke of the brick kilns, Israel toils in Egypt. How was God's decree to be fulfilled? When God bears his arm, you shall see and wonder. Pharaoh and all his hosts cannot hold those captives whom God determines to set free. There they go, led forth like sheep by the hands of Moses and Aaron. They cross the desert until they come to the Red Sea. See, the mighty stream rolls before them and their ferocious enemies are behind. But the Lord has determined that they shall inherit the land, and therefore neither can the sea refuse to divide, nor can Pharaoh save himself when he goes down into its depths. They are in the wilderness. Famine shall destroy them. No, the heavens drop with manna. Thirst shall scorch them. No, the rock follows them with its living stream. The serpents will surely bite them. No, but the bronze serpent is lifted up, and whoever looks shall be healed. The Amalekites attack them, but while Moses holds up his hands, Joshua defeats the foe. They come to the banks of the Jordan. The water was stopped and the priests go through on dry ground and all the people of God march after them. Then the Canaanites with their chariots of iron came against them in battle. The kings of mighty cities laid hold of sword and shield, but which of them prevailed? Did not Jehovah destroy them all? as he had given them Og, king of Bashan, because his steadfast love endures forever, and Sihon, king of the Amorites, because his steadfast love endures forever, so not a man could stand against them until they possessed the land. The mighty hand of the Lord fulfilled his own decree. His own right hand and his holy arm won him the victory. As with a rod of iron, he dashed his enemies in pieces like a potter's vessel. None could withstand the hosts of Israel. The walled cities were cast down and the people of God dwelt in the fat of the land. See, beloved, the result of God's decree. The sons of Jacob were feeble and weak, but yet the Lord made them strong enough to drive out their enemies. For his purpose shall stand. He will do all his pleasure. Let us beware of fighting against someone who has God as his ally. For it is in vain to fight against God. 
It was a good remark of the wise men to Haman of old. They said, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And so, if anyone among the company of the elect, if he is one of those whose names are written in the book of life, his enemies may contend, but they shall never prevail against him. He whom the Lord ordains to hold must stand. And if God determines his salvation, neither mortal nor infernal power shall prevail to destroy him. On this account, we may boldly say with the apostle, If God is for us, who can be against us? You cannot believe in a defeated God. You cannot imagine the imperial decree from the throne of heaven treated as waste paper. It should be far from us so to blaspheme God as to think that any power, known or unknown, can ever overcome him. If your soul is written upon the palms of Jesus' hands and graven on his heart, no weapon which is formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment shall be condemned. But in looking back, you observe the second thing. God is on our side for he has called us. In the word of God, much stress is laid upon calling. When Abraham left the land of his forefathers and went out, not knowing where he was going, he was quite safe, though in the midst of implacable enemies, because God had called him. On that memorable occasion when Abraham returned from the slaughter of the kings, you remember Melchizedek met him. At that time, Abraham was in great peril, for there was every probability that the defeated kings would again gather their troops, would form alliances with other kings, and would certainly come up to cut down so insignificant a person as that wandering shepherd, Abraham. But what does God say to him? Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. This became his comfort. God had called him. He was a called man, and where God calls, he will not desert his chosen, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. He does not reverse the call which he has given, but having once called his children, he remains faithful to the call he has given. To use the illustration we used before, when God called his son out of Egypt, when he fetched Israel from the furnace, who could stand against the called Israelites? Plague after plague ravaged the land. The cattle died. The crops were blasted. Frogs came up into the king's chamber. Finally, the firstborn of Egypt died, and they implored Israel to go out of the land. For when God called them out, who could hold them in? When he said to his prisoners, Go forth, what bolts of iron or what gates of brass could keep them captives? Let the Lord call by his effectual voice, Who is he that can stand against him? Many of us, I trust, have heard the sacred call. We have made our calling and election sure. You know how you were called from darkness to light, from sin to holiness, from self-righteousness to spiritual faith in Jesus. Now, he who has called you is faithful. He will not forsake the work of his own hands. He has not called you in order to put you to shame. He has not made you alive and preserved you and brought you this far to deliver you over to the hands of your enemies. Be of good courage. 
and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait upon the Lord still, for his call will give you comfort. If God is for us, who can be against us? But again, God proves that he is for us by having justified us. All the people of God are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and wearing that glorious robe, the eye of God sees no fault in them. Christ is seen and not the sinner. Because Christ is perfect, the believer is seen as perfect in him. God regards his people with the same affection as that with which he loves his only begotten son. He has pronounced them clean and clean they are. He has proclaimed them just, covered with the righteousness of Christ, and just they are. Come, you accusing devil. Come, you who lay a thousand things to our charge. But if our Jesus pronounces our acquittal, who is he who condemns? If Jesus mounts the chariot of salvation, who is he that can be against us? Is it not a mysteriously blessed thing to wear upon one's soul the mark of complete justification? Some heathens have a custom of marking themselves upon the forehead with the seal of their God. But oh, what a seal is this to wear! What a mark of the Lord Jesus to go about this world a perfectly justified person! God looks upon common men with anger. They are not reconciled to him. But toward his people, he always looks with eyes of love. No anger is in his heart toward them, not a particle of wrath. All this has been put away through the great sacrifice. Toward them, his whole heart goes out. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. Being justified, they have peace with God through Jesus Christ, their Lord. Oh, dear friends, if God is at peace with you, it does not matter who is at war with you. If your master acquits, it matters little who condemns. If Jehovah absolves, your name may be cast out as evil. You may be ranked among the vilest of the vile. Your name may be a byword and a proverb, only fit to be brought up in the drunkard's song. But who is it that can be against you? What are all these things, if put on a scale, but lighter than vanity, if Jehovah himself has justified you? And yet again, there is another sweet reflection here. He has also glorified us. Remember the four golden links of the chain. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, in one sense, God's people are glorified even now, for he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Notice it does not say he has promised that he will seat us there, but he has seated us there. We sit there at this hour, for Christ is the representative of every soul for whom he shed his blood. And when Christ took his seat in heaven, every elect soul took his seat in heaven representatively. Remember, beloved, that the glorification of God's people is a certain fact. It is not a thing which may be, but it is a thing which must be. What does Jesus Christ say to his people when he gathers them at his right hand? Come, 
you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Do you think God has prepared a kingdom and that he will not bring his people there? Moreover, it is said, prepared for you, for you, the chosen people of God. And do you imagine that the covenant wisdom of God would prepare a kingdom for people who would not ultimately get there? Would he plan and arrange how to make them eternally blessed and yet allow them to perish on the way? Prepared for you, remember, from the foundation of the world. There is a crown in heaven which no head can fit but mine. Child of God, there is a room in heaven which will never be rightly occupied if you do not get there. And there is a place at God's right hand which must be empty unless you shall arrive there. Will it be so? Will there be empty rooms in heaven? Will there be crowns without heads to wear them? No, the muster roll of the redeemed shall be read and not one shall be found absent. As many as were written upon the breastplate of the great high priest shall be securely found there. Not death nor hell shall e'er divide his chosen from his breast. In the dear bosom of his love, they must forever rest. This gives a fourth reason why God is for us. But oh, my brothers and sisters, though this gives us the context, I cannot, it is impossible for any human speech to bring out the depth of the meaning of how God is for us. He was for us before the worlds were made. He was for us or else he never would have given his son. He was for us even when he struck the only begotten and laid the full weight of his wrath upon him. He was for us though we were against him. He was for us when we were ruined in the fall. He loved us in spite of it all. He was for us even when we were against him with high-handed defiance. He was for us or else he never would have brought us humbly to seek his face. He has been for us in many struggles. We have had to fight through multitudes of difficulties. We have had temptations from without and from within. How could we have held on until now if he had not been with us? He is for us, let me say, with all the infinity of his heart, with all the omnipotence of his love, for us with all his boundless wisdom, arrayed in all the attributes which make him God. He is for us, eternally and immutably for us. Here, child of God, is a subject for much thought, even though you had ages to meditate on it. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? In the second place, who is against us? The apostle never meant to say that Christians have no enemies, for he knew better. An old Latin writer observes upon this text that the following context will show us the enemies we have who are against us. Very briefly, let us notice that there are four main enemies who conspire against the life of the children of God. There is man, the world, the flesh, and the devil. These always will be against us, but who are they? First, there is man. 
how man has struggled against man. Man is the wolf of mankind, not the elements in all their fury, nor the wild beasts of prey in all their cruelty have ever been such terrible enemies to man as man has been to his own kind. When you read the story of the Marian persecution in England, you are astounded that ever creatures wearing a human form could be so bloodthirsty. We do not in this age feel the cruelty of man to that extent, but this is only because the custom of the land will not allow it. For there are many who dare not strike with the hand who are very busy in laying on their tongue. And not by exposing our errors, which they have a perfect right to do, but in many cases the children of God are misrepresented, slandered, abused, persecuted, ridiculed for truth's sake. And we know many instances where other means are resorted to. Anything to drive the servants of God away from their integrity and away from their simple following of their master. Well did the Lord Jesus say, Beware of men. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Do not expect men to be the friends of your piety, or if they are, suspect the reality of that piety of which ungodly man is a friend. You must expect to sometimes be bullied and sometimes coerced, to be sometimes flattered and sometimes threatened. Look out and expect that men will be against you. But what are they? Suppose every living man in the world were against you and that you had to stand in solitude like Athanasius. You might say, as Athanasius did, I, Athanasius, against the whole world. I know I have truth on my side and therefore against the world I stand. Of what use was the malice of men against Martin Luther? They thought to burn him, but he died in his bed despite them all. They thought to put an end to him, but his little tracks went everywhere, and the words of Luther seemed to be carried on the wings of angels, until in the most distant places the Pope found an enemy suddenly springing up where he thought the good seed had all been destroyed. I do not know that it is of any great service to have the multitudes with you. I question whether truth is not generally to be found with the minority, and whether it is not just as honorable to serve God with two or three as it would be with two or three million. For if numbers could make a thing right, idolatry ought to be the right religion. And if in countries across the sea numbers made a thing right, why those who fear the Lord would be few indeed, and idolatry and Roman Catholicism would be the right thing. Never judge according to numbers. They are nothing but men after all. If they are good men, fight on their side. But if truth leaves them, leave with the truth. Who then, what then, are men? Only puppets moved by God's hand. He has the string to pull them all which way he wills. And if they will not serve him, he can soon lower them quietly into the grave. Therefore, do not be afraid of the Son of Man, who is just a little heap of dust. Do not be dismayed at him. And if he puts on a dark and terrible face, look him in the face with truthfulness and make him blush. That was grand of Latimer when he preached before Henry VIII. 
He had greatly displeased his majesty by his boldness in a sermon preached before the king and was ordered to preach again the following week and to make an apology for the offense he had given. After reading his text, the bishop began his sermon in this way. Hugh Latimer, do you know before whom you are this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away your life if you offend, Therefore, take heed that you do not speak a word that may displease. But then, consider well, Hugh. Do you not know where you come from, upon whose message you are sent, even by the great and mighty God, who is all-present and who beholds all your ways and who is able to cast your soul into hell? Therefore, take care that you deliver your message faithfully." He then proceeded with the same sermon he had preached the preceding week, but with considerably more energy. Such courage all God's children should show when they deal with man. If God puts his truth into you, do not play the coward or stammer out his message, but stand up courageously for God and for his truth. The second adversary is the world. This world is like a great field covered with brambles and thorns and thistles, and as the Christian goes through it, he is continually in danger of tearing his garments or cutting his feet. Yet the dear path to thine abode lies through this barren land. Every child of God must march through the enemy's land, for Christ says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. When is a Christian out of danger in this world? Never. If he is prosperous, then he is apt to grow purse-proud or carnally secure. If adversaries press upon him, he is apt to grumble and to grow unbelieving. There are temptations in the high places of the earth, and the valleys are not without them. When the Christian is in an honorable position, he is in great peril. Ah, how many have found the high places to be slippery ones. When the believer is in shame and disrepute, he is in danger too. For many professing Christians have found this cross too heavy for their shoulders. A believer ought to walk through this world expecting to meet an enemy behind every hedge and consider it a wonder if he shall escape for a single day without a bullet from the foe. You are in an enemy's country. And this enemy is on the alert continually. You may sleep, but the world never sleeps. Its customs are always seeking to bind you with their chains. Its spirit is creeping over you while you are on the exchange or in the market or even in the family. You will find the very atmosphere of this world tends to make you sleep as others do. You will have much trouble while you are in this state of temptation to stand your ground And unless you watch and pray, the world will be too much for you. Oh, brothers and sisters, I wish that we knew the world to be more our enemy than we do. For many walk as if they were friends with this world. But this is not the Christian's position. He can say, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The world is a terrible assailant if we are left alone in the conflict. But what is the world after all, if God is with us? As for this present age, where will it be in 40 years? 
I see a long line of dirt mounds, and many a here he lies. And this generation is all gone. It passes away. It is like a candle snuff. And he that cares for it is like a man worshiping a dying wick. Care little for this world, but think much of the world to come. This poor quicksand, get off of it lest it swallow you up. But the rock of ages, build on him and you shall never suffer loss. I think we said there is a third enemy, and that is the flesh. It is the worst of the three. We should never need to fear man nor the world if we did not have this wicked flesh to carry around with us. Inbred corruption is the worst of corruption. Lord, said Augustine, deliver me from my worst enemy, that wicked man myself. If a Christian could lay himself down and run away from himself and never see himself again, he would be delighted beyond measure. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh is the experience not of the apostle only, but of every child of God. When you want to do good, evil is present with you. You want to fly away, but like the hawk which has a chain on her leg, you can only stretch your wings and flutter. You cannot mount aloft. You long to feel your heart as hot as an oven, but there is a mountain of ice within you which chills your flaming desires. To will is present with you. Oh, if you could be what you want to be, but how to perform that which is good, you cannot figure out. By reason of the weakness of your nature and the depravity you have inherited from your parents, Some of you have an irritable temper. It will be your plague until you die. Others find that though you desire to be generous to the cause of God, yet a covetous disposition has to be struggled with. Some have to fight against frivolity, others against pride. And on the other hand, there are some of us whose daily burden is to fight against discouragement and lowness of spirits. So that we all have some besetting sin. But if God is for us, what does the flesh matter? Ah, poor flesh, you may kick and struggle as you will, but when God holds his scepter over you, you will surely yield. When Jehovah decrees that a man shall be sanctified, that man's flesh may cry and groan, but the furnace shall refine him. The Holy Spirit shall purify him and experience shall teach him and the blood of Christ shall perfect him. Despite that wicked heart of ours, we will ascend on eagle's wings and be found without fault before the throne of God. The last enemy is the devil. I do not know whether he is worse than the flesh or not, but I think I may put him down as being about on par with it. For when the devil meets our flesh, the two shake hands and say, How do you do, brother? Truly the two are brothers, for our flesh was originally in the family of wrath. Ah, that arch-traitor, Satan! Little do we know what temptations he is plotting and planning for us even now. He is so crafty that he understands human nature better than human nature understands itself. He has been playing the part of a tempter for thousands of years. He ought to be a thorough master of the business, and certainly he is. He who made us knows more of us than Satan does, 
But next to God, Satan is the best student of humanity. He knows our weak points too. He understands where to touch us so as to touch our bone and our flesh. He knows how to cover up the hook with the bait. For every soul, he has his lure. And for every sinner, he has his trap. He knows how to take one this way and the other the opposite. Some by striving after a pretended spirituality and others by descending into the grossest sensuality. Depend on it, my brothers and sisters. You may think yourself to be safe against Satan, but there is a crack in your harness and he will find it out. And remember, as one leak may sink a ship, so one weak point may be your ruin if God did not prevent it. But what does the devil matter when we have this text? If God is for us, who can be against us? The devil is mighty, but God is almighty. Satan is strong, but all strength belongs to God. What is Satan after all, but an enemy who has had his head broken? He is a broken headed dragon. The Lord has a hook in his nose and a bridle in his jaws, and he knows how to pull him back. Sometimes I wish he would take him up a link or two that he might not be so busy among some of our churches, but he is a chained enemy. The Lord lets him go just so far, but never any further. Oh, if the fiend could just get a little further, what havoc he would work. You know how it was with Job. Satan dared not touch his flesh. At first, he could only touch his children and cattle. He had to get permission to touch his flesh. And even then, he dared not touch his life. He went as far as his tether and troubled poor Job with painful sores. He could not go any further, for God restrained him. Rejoice, Christian, whether it be man or the whole world or your flesh or Satan. If God has predestined you, called you, justified you, and in the person of Jesus Christ, glorified you, you may put the whole together and then say, Who can be against us? As chaff is driven away, so, O Lord, you have driven them away. We shall close our meditation this morning, and God make it profitable to his own people by observing who are those who are not against us. For there are some who cannot be our enemies. And here is a very pleasing part of the subject. God the Father cannot be against us. He is our Father. He cannot be against His own children. He has chosen us. He will not cast us away. He has adopted us into His family. He will never discard us. He has been pleased to ordain us unto eternal life, he will never reverse the decree. He was for us in the covenant of grace when he planned the way to save rebellious humanity. He has been for us in the great ordering of providence. All things have worked together for good for us until now. We wonder how we have arrived where we are now, but surely providence under God has worked wondrously on our behalf. He is for us in all the decrees which are yet to be fulfilled. There is not a single line in the great book which is against the Christian. 
You may rest assured that whether earth shall rock and reel or the moon be black as sackcloth or the earth be burned up with tongues of fire, still Jehovah has not a single thought nor wish nor word nor look against any one of the blood-bought ones. They are all safe in him. God the Father cannot be against us. Then, God the Son is not against us. Oh, beloved, how sweetly he has been for us. I think I see him now, lifting up that face, all covered with bloody sweat, and saying to every believer, I am for you. This gore falls to the dust for you. I sweat great drops of blood that I might redeem you. He stands before Pilate, and when he is brought forth, I think I hear him say, Poor sinner, I am for you. I see him carrying the cross upon his bleeding shoulders, and every step he takes is to this tune, I am for you. I behold him bleeding upon the tree with outstretched hands and all his wounds and all the drops of blood which flow from his side all say, Christ is for you. Today, as he pleads before the eternal throne, this is the tenor of his plea. I am for you. When he shall come a second time without a sin offering unto salvation, the sound of the mighty trumpet which shall herald his advent will ring out, Christ is for you, O you blood-bought saints. When he shall sit upon the throne of his Father, and his kingdom shall come, of which there shall be no end, this shall be the tenor of that kingdom. I am for my people. I will rule my people righteously and bless the nations upon earth. Christ cannot be against you. You cannot look into that dear face of his and think that he will ever leave you. Your husband is married to you and he has proved his love by such indisputable tokens that you must not, oh, you cannot doubt it. Child of God, how can he leave you? Could he have bought you at such a price? Could he have suffered so much for you and yet leave you, throw you away upon the dunghill? Impossible, impossible. Those wounds forever seal your everlasting security. Then the Holy Spirit cannot be against us. He must always, as the comforter, comfort his own people. As the illuminator, he must lead us into the truth. As the great giver of life, he must always resurrect us from our death of sin. Whatever power the Holy Spirit has, it is all engaged for us. Behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. Then the holy angels, they cannot be against us. When Elisha opened his servant's eyes, the servant had cried before, Alas, my master, what shall we do? When he saw the Syrians and their chariots, but now he sees the horses of fire and chariots of fire surrounding Elisha. So it is with you. The angels are ministering spirits who minister to the heirs of salvation. They bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Then we know the law of God cannot be against us. It was our enemy once through our sins, 
but it is now satisfied. Christ has made it honorable. It does not have a word to say against any soul that is justified in Christ. The justice of God does not have a word to say against the Christian. On the contrary, justice is content to confirm the saving decree. For, says justice, that sinner owes me nothing. Christ has discharged his debts. I will not put that sinner in prison. I have no right to do so. For Christ was imprisoned instead of him. I will not lay my whip upon his shoulders. For Christ suffered with his much beaten shoulders in the place of that poor believing soul. So, Christian, whoever may be against you, here is a comfort. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can never be against you. The angels of heaven, the law, and the justice of God must always be for you. And if it be so, who can be against you? Two more remarks, and then I will be done. One is, there is an opposite to all this, and it belongs to some who are present here this morning. If God is against you, who can be for you? If you are an enemy of God this morning, your very blessings are curses to you. Your pleasures are only the prelude to your pains. Remember, sinner, that whether you have adversity or prosperity, so long as God is against you, you can never truly prosper. You may be fattened with wealth, but you are only prepared as the bull for the slaughter. Take these words home, I implore you, and let them ring in your ears. If God is against me, just that supposition, a supposition which is fact because you have not believed in Christ, you have not given your heart to God. If God is against me, will you just think this over on your way home? Take half an hour this afternoon to think it over. If God is against me, what then? What will become of me in time and eternity? If God is against me, how shall I die? How shall I rise again? How shall I face him in the day of judgment? If God is against me. It is not an impossible if, but an if which amounts to a certainty, I fear, in the case of many who are sitting in this house today. Then Christian, here is another thought, and I am done. If God is for you, do you not see how you ought to be for God? If God has taken up your cause Ought you not to take up his? I pleaded with you last Sunday, since Christ has pleaded the causes of your soul to plead the cause of Christ. There is a great battle which has only just begun. The fight will be stern and desperate between Christ's pure truth and the ceremonials of the world's church. And you must take your post, every one of you, on one side or the other. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. You must be on one side or the other. And I ask you, if God has been for you and defended you, stand up for him. Never reduce a word of Christ's truth. Not a hair of the head of Christ's truth 
must ever be allowed to be touched with the smell of the fire of compromise. Do not be as the prostitutes were who stood before Solomon. You remember one was quite content to have half of the living child. But make your motto, all or none. I will never take a particle of error. No amalgamation, no compromise, no peace with error. Take your part with Christ and his despised people. And when the day comes, when he shall distribute his rewards, happy shall that person be who never flinched. And blessed shall he be and shall she be who stood fast in the evil day and stood still in the integrity of the Lord and in the firmness of his truth, firm even to the end. The Lord bless you in this thing, for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon originally preached by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the content has been updated and abridged, and scripture quotations are from the ESV Bible. You can support this ministry by sharing the podcast and leaving positive reviews. Most importantly, please pray that God would use this ministry to save those who are lost and impassion His people for His glory.